0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: The backstory to this particular message flows to Thursday morning. I was uh, telling the, the students in the semester that, uh, you know, our, we used to have a lot more opportunity for flex room in a semester, and now we're pretty much defined as far as what our content is throughout the semester. But there's like one day where we could choose uh, which, which message we were going to give, and it came down to two. And uh, the Chariot of the Cherubim, which has sort of been a long time uh, uh, fun message that we've given at Ellerslie for years no longer is in our normal curriculum. And it was voted out by one vote uh, on Thursday. And so, you know, my heart went out to the students. And uh, so this is somewhat of a unique uh, rendition of the Cherry to the Cherubim, sort of uh, Sunday morning style, because it's a two-hour message. Don't, Don't worry, guys. I know the reputation precedes me. But uh, this isn't that long of a message. Uh, the Chariot of the Almighty. See, I had to change the name, too. This isn't the same message. But uh, now, I just, let's pause there before we even go any further. The title of this should strike you uh, funny, and that's okay. Uh, the Chariot of the Almighty. Well, the Almighty is God himself. I don't know how many of you ever think of God riding in a chariot. I mean, there's chariots in the Bible. and We know that uh, some men rode in chariots. We know that Elijah was carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And yet there is something known as a chariot, a very specific chariot that I'm going to introduce you to. Uh, the chariot of the cherubim in scripture is what it's called. And I know, I know this sounds totally bizarre, but God rides that chariot. Does God need to ride anything? Isn't he everywhere all at once? I mean, what, what is this? That he rides a chariot. And so I have a subtitle to this one, A Study in the Grand and Mystifying Purpose of the Believer. This is almost to the point of outlandish, and yet it comes straight out of the Scriptures. This is Narnia, is a better way of saying it maybe. However, once you realize what it says in the book of Ezekiel, you begin to say, no, 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 Narnia is simply like heaven. You see, the way that God describes reality in this other realm is not necessarily normal to us in our realm. It is unusual, just as much as C.S. Lewis's Narnia would be unusual to us, and it's quite a fantasy land for many of us, and yet you almost wonder, you know, maybe C.S. Lewis should have amped it up a little. I don't know that he quite caught up with what the Word of God actually says. The chariot of the Almighty. So, to really understand this, I'm going to get some raw materials out on the table. The cherubim. Some of you have have heard of cherubs, and usually they're associated with February 14th, Valentine's Day, and they're pudgy little baby-like creatures that shoot arrows of love, and when they strike, then the person nearest, I guess, suddenly you look at them and go, oh, and you fall in love. Uh, That isn't actually what the Bible would clarify a cherub to be, so you're going to need to erase your mentality there, and we're going to need to override it. So I'm going to give you a very basic definition. We will go a little bit further into this. But it's an amazingly powerful, amazingly wise, four-faced, four-winged heavenly creature. Mm -hmm. They exist. If you believe the Bible, then you say, they exist. And it's not that they existed, they exist. And, uh, you know, there's four creatures, four living creatures in the throne of God in the book of Revelation... And there's the parallel with these creatures that we're going to read about in the Old Testament. It's quite profound. And, uh, but one thing that might be a fascinating tidbit of information for you. You've heard of Lucifer. He's also known as Satan. Uh, bad guy. It would be totally appropriate for us to boo him uh, here. Uh, Lucifer. Yes. Uh, you know that it actually declares in Scripture that he was the cherub that covered? In other words, he's a cherub. So... For those of you that are wondering what he looks like, he would be an amazingly powerful, amazingly wise, four-faced, four-winged heavenly creature. I know, that doesn't fit our red character with the pitchfork uh, and the spiky tail. Uh, And yet, that would be a far more accurate portrayal of what he looks like. Four faces. I mean, what do you do with that? Well, so as we go through this, you're going to realize that your intrigue levels to the idea of cherubim is going to spike. Have you ever heard about people getting distracted with the whole concept of angels? And instead of focusing on God, they end up getting distracted and studying angels. God seems to be very aware of this propensity, which is why he seems to clamp down. He gives us just enough information to be fascinated, and then he goes silent and doesn't answer any of our questions. So you can come up to me and ask me all sorts of questions about cherubim. I don't know the answers. It's all guesses. Because God seems to have limited our understanding of them because he knows our propensity to get distracted. And so we know what we know, which you'll find out what we know today, which is very limited, and then he goes mum on the subject. It's very intriguing, I have to admit. But the cherubim, listen to this, 2 Samuel 22, 11. And he, speaking of God, rode upon a cherub and did fly. Uh, okay, let's keep reading. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. What is that? And God rode upon a cherub? Now that's why you have to erase your mental picture of the little chubby baby. That really doesn't fit into that, does it? So now in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is going back and he's basically showing how God's system or architecture for how he built this culture known as the Hebrew culture and how he designed the very temple itself was to reveal the person of Jesus Christ and the new covenant understanding that we have in his shed blood. And so here the writer of Hebrews refers to the cherubim. You can see he's going through all these key things that he sees in the Old Testament And then he gets to the cherubim, and all of us lean in and go, oh, I've been waiting to learn about the cherubim. Listen to what he says. And over at the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat. So if any of you have ever heard of the description of the temple, there's two cherubs that literally stretch forth their wings over what's known as the Ark of the Covenant or the mercy seat, the throne of God. And so we get to this point, and the writer baits us. You know, we all lean in. We're going, oh, boy, I've been waiting a long time to learn what those cherubim were all about. And then it says this, of which we cannot now speak particularly. (laughs) That's what we have in the New Testament right there. In other words, there seems to be a deliberate statement to us to say, oh, when you get to heaven, you'll understand this. But don't get distracted now. Focus your gaze on Jesus Christ. And so even as we go through this, there's going to be a propensity, an intrigue inside of you to try and figure this one out at a deeper level. So I'm going to describe the cherub as God's mobile carrying device. I mean, it's sort of hard to argue. On a cherub, he did fly. And so there seems to be some kind of mobile carrying device for God. I know it sounds really strange at first, but just listen and you'll understand as we progress. A cherub was built to carry the vast, immense glory of God. So God is going to actually take a message from here to there. So how does he do it? Well, he seems to get on a cherub and is carried there. I know. I know. Weird. But this is what we see. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwells between the cherubim, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, thou hast made heaven and earth. Now when you pray to God, how often do you, remind him that he dwells between the cherubim. You see, to us in this room, cherubim really don't matter. We don't think about cherubim. And now Eric's brought it up, and now you're thinking about cherubim. But, you know, for all practical purposes, why think about cherubim? What good does it lend my spiritual understanding? How is this going to grow me up in the strength of the Lord? And for the altar of incense, refine gold by weight. So we're, we're zooming back into the Old Testament here, and God is giving very specific instruction for how to build the temple of God. And in this, we see that we are actually building the Holy of Holies. We're, we're seeing the design and the template or the architectural design for the very presence of God. And it says, and for the altar of incense, refine gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot of the cherubim that spread out their wings and covered the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And so here we have the mention of a chariot. Now, when you think of the Holy of Holies in the temple of God, do you think of it being a chariot? Uh, No, it's a room. It's actually 20 cubits by 20 cubits, like a square. I don't know how many of you are thinking of that on wheels. And yet, the revelation of God in the Old Testament is that this thing is, in fact, mobile. It moves, and it's even referred to as a chariot. The chariot of the cherubim. So the chariot of the cherubim. We're going to call it the holy of holies, the seat of God, the mobile presence. Now God is seated in a high and holy place, separate from us. And yet somehow you have found out about him. Somehow the revelation of God's almightiness has reached you. How did it get there? Well, it went mobile. Mobile. God delivered something to you, and that's the entire gospel message. The good news is that God loved you so much that he got a message to you. He did something on your behalf, and he has delivered it unto you. So we're going to go through the very first chapter of Ezekiel. When I go through this message, typically I go through the first three chapters, so we'll call this the very shortened, uh, truncated version of this message. Uh, Ezekiel. Now, for those of you that have been around Ellerslie, you have an appreciation for certain Hebrew words, and one of them is hasak. And the word Ezekiel is actually hasak-el. That's actually his name, is the word for the strength. So when when Moses is saying, uh, well, actually God is saying to Moses and through Moses, be strong and of good courage. That's the ancient war cry of the Hebrew, which is, rock hasak! And so it's the idea of the great strength of heaven literally coming into man and empowering him to do that which he couldn't do on his own. And so this man, that this idea of the chariot of the cherubim is going to be revealed through in his prophecies. His very name means Hesok plus El, which is uh, Hesok strength, and El is God. God strengthens. And that isn't to be overlooked uh, in the formation of our understanding of this man and what he says. So Ezekiel, the vision of God upon his chariot. All throughout the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is going to see something. And in the very first chapter of Ezekiel, we're going to read what he sees. But then throughout the book of Ezekiel, which is a big book, You're going to see him refer to it. He says, like the visions I saw by the river Kabar. And he's going to say this over and over again. Well, you're going to see the vision that he sees by the river Kabar. What has he seen? He's seen the chariot of the cherubim. He's seen the very mobile presence of God come down to this earth. And he describes it in great detail in Ezekiel chapter 1. There's a reason why many of us skip Ezekiel, especially the first three chapters. You will understand why, because it is completely mystifying. What in the world am I reading here? So we'll read it. (laughs) Ezekiel chapter 1. Now, I've skipped uh, the time period, and I've skipped the fact that he's sitting by the river Kabar when he receives us. I'm trying to make this as streamlined as I can. And Ezekiel speaks, he says, Then I looked, and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. And brightness was all around it and radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. Also from within it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. Now what you are having described to you right now, it's not until later in the book of Ezekiel that you recognize that these are cherubim. So I'm skipping all of that study and I'm just telling you right now. These living creatures are in fact cherubim. And this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. So a cherubim looks like a man, except there's some differences. Each one had four faces. That's a difference. (laughs) And each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calf's feet. So, I mean, this is where Narnia comes in. I mean, if you remember Mr. Tumnus, that's sort of what we have, except for we have four faces and some wings, too. They're, they sparkled like the color of burnished bronze, which is a bright white. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides. So they had the hands of a man with four wings, yet they have feet like calves' feet. And each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. So I don't know if your mind goes in this direction, but mine has a tough time not going in this direction. But I think about how do you sleep? So, you have a face of a man, which I am used to that, but I'm not used to having a lion over here. And how about an ox over here? And then, could you imagine laying down at night and the eagle's like, ah! <laughs> so, do you rotate and every night someone gets their face squished into the pillow? And I have had people ask, it's like, so who eats? And who doesn't? Do they all eat? Do they all have a plate in front of them and you sit in some weird center thing and then it's around them? And I mean, do you feed one and they all share a stomach? Do they all have different stomachs? I mean, I can't answer these questions. I don't know. It's a mystery. And God doesn't seem to go out of his way to help us with this. He just sort of smirks and says, How are you doing right now? (laughs) Thus were their faces. Their wings stretched upward, two wings of each one touched one another, and two covered their bodies, and each one went straight forward. They went wherever the spirit wanted to go. I am going to refer to this line in the future, so I want you to take note of it. The cherubim, it says of them that they went wherever the spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches going back and forth among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went lightning, and the living creatures ran back and forth in appearance like a flash of lightning. So one of the the ways that I I probably wrap my brain around this, first of all, they move like lightning. (laughs) And so, do you like on July Fourth? You have those uh, 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 the sparklers, and then you you wave them through the air. That's in a sense what I picture. I picture them moving so quick with that flame of fire that it literally leaves a trail behind. Isn't that neat? I like that mental picture. And the living creatures ran back and forth, in appearance like a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with its four faces. Remember we described this as a chariot? I mean, I guess it makes sense that there would be wheels. I mean, how odd is this? So if you can start to use your imagination and form some kind of mental picture, we seem to have four, just like four wheels for a chariot, and under each of the corners of this chariot, there seems to be a cherubim. And next to each of the cherubim seems to be a wheel. I'm not a, I could not draw this picture. I know people have tried to draw this. But no matter what I ever think in my brain, it always has a problem to it. It's like, I don't know how this thing functionally works. The appearance of the wheels and their workings was like the color of beryl. And all four had the same likeness. The appearance of their workings was, as it were, a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And I say, thank you, Ezekiel, for that very vivid description. (laughs) When they went toward any one of four directions, they did not turn aside when they went. As for their rims, they were so high, they were awesome. (laughs) Those are some high rims, guys. (laughs) And their rims were full of eyes. So right when you were saying, this isn't that confusing, Eric... And then Eric whips out that one. I didn't put it there. And all around the four of them, when the living creatures went, the wheels went beside them. And when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Because there the Spirit went. I'm going to read that line again because I'm going to come back to it. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. Because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When those went, these went. When those stood, these stood. When those were lifted up from the earth, the wheels were lifted up together with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. The likeness of the firmament above the heads of the living creatures was like the color of an awesome crystal stretched out over their heads. So what we have is the introduction... Ezekiel's just talking as if we sort of have this figured out with him. He's describing it, and what we want to say is, Ezekiel, I have no idea what you're talking about. And yet he keeps describing it as if it must be pretty obvious here. Above these four living creatures, these cherubim, who have wheels next to them, there seems to be a layer. It's called a firmament. It's some kind of platform. And it separates where the cherubim are and their wheels from that which is above it. And something is going to rest upon this firmament, which is very, very important that you will learn about in just a second. However, there's a description for this firmament, and it is the color of an awesome crystal. One of the things, whenever you hear a description of the throne room of God, you are going to get certain descriptions. You're going to get a description of God himself who sits on his throne, and you're going to see fire. You're going to see a rainbow wrapped about him. You're going to see that underneath the throne upon which he sit flows a river. And that river is clear as crystal. And so what flows from God's throne seems to be a river. It is clear. And yet it is a living river. And so what we see here is a description in the mobile version of whatever is coming down out of heaven... There seems to be a crystal barrier. And it says, stretched out over their heads and under the ferment, their wings spread out straight, one toward another. Each one had two which covered one side, and each one had two which covered the other side of the body. When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the the voice of the Almighty, a tumult like the noise of an army. So when the cherubim move, the sound of their wings is so loud that it sounds like Niagara Falls. It sounds like the voice of God. So now you know what the voice of God sounds like. I guess it sounds like Niagara Falls. What's interesting is in the book of Revelation, when it describes those four living creatures in the midst of the throne, it describes their sound and when they speak exactly the same, when they move. It sounds like the voice of the Almighty, like a mighty rushing river. And so what we have is a parallel between this. What we are seeing, what Ezekiel sees and what John the Apostle sees is identical. And when they stood still, they let down their wings. A voice came from above the firmament. Uh Uh-oh, who's up there? That was over their heads. Whenever they stood, they let down their wings. And above the firmament, over their heads, was the likeness of a throne. Now... To truly understand what is taking place here, you need to realize that the Holy of Holies is not just a place where a high priest enters with a sacrifice of blood. It is the place of God's presence. And that Ark of Covenant that rests there is actually the throne of God. It is the place where he sits. And so what we have in this situation is on top of this terrible crystal, this awesome crystal... We have a throne. And in appearance, it has the appearance of a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with the appearance of a man high above it. So there's actually the appearance of a man seated on a throne on top of this firmament, which is being carried by four cherubim. Also from the appearance of his waist and upward, I saw as it were the color of amber with the appearance of fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward, I saw as it were the appearance of fire with brightness all around. Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. When you see the description of God in person, when you hear the description of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, you're going to notice some similarities here. There seems to be a clothing of rainbow. God seems to be clothed, just like Joseph was, in a coat of many colors. What is God's symbol in the sky? His symbol of covenant. Zoro, when he leaves a room after making his big rescue, puts a Z on the wall. God leaves a rainbow. It's his symbol. It's a symbol of unchanging I am-ness. This is who he is. You know, the colors of a rainbow have never changed throughout all the years. Isn't that an amazing thought? Their order is exactly the same. So like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so is the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice of one speaking. And of course, that's why I never like to stop at the end of chapter one, because now it just gets good but this should bait you to all open up your Bibles and start reading Ezekiel chapter 2, 3, and you might as well keep going. However, what you see is that God is coming to this earth with a message, and he is looking for a man who will carry a very difficult task into his generation, and he finds Ezekiel. And what's amazing is when you read the book of Ezekiel, the number one thought you could have is, I'm glad I'm not Ezekiel. That's one of the number one thoughts you would have, and yet... You are Ezekiel. I mean, that's not your name, but this is symbolic of you. God has come to this earth, and he is looking for a body. He is looking for a man or a woman who will carry his awesome glory into this world. That's what he's looking for. And so what we are seeing in the Old Testament is we're seeing a foreshadow of something so utterly profound. God is going to go mobile. And he is going to come to this earth and reveal his glory. Now, one person in the Old Testament sees this. But in this generation, it's to be the entire world that beholds it. From the cherubim chariot to the humble chariot. So God Almighty rides a chariot. A cherubim chariot, nonetheless. The cherubim are the wisest, most powerful of God's creation. At the very onset of this message, you may have thought that you were the wisest and most powerful and most beautiful of his creatures. And yet what we discover in the Word of God is that there are creatures even more powerful, more wise than we are. And that should lead to some questions. Well then why doesn't he choose them to be his carrying device? Why wouldn't he use them to bear witness of the gospel in this generation? Why would he choose? That's a good question. It's called a humble chariot. You see, God, I'm setting you up for something. I'm setting you up for the fact that God has always revealed himself of being carried into this world. And that his what he's worthy of being carried by would be the highest and most wise of all creatures. And even when those highest and most wise, most brilliant and most powerful of all creatures, most beautiful creatures that he has created are assigned the task, do you know how they did it? They did not turn to the right or to the left. They did exactly what God asked them to do. Without question. They did not dicker. They did not go, God, why do you want to go there? They just went there. And here we have been chosen as the caring device for the glory of God, and yet what do we do? God, I, I don't know that you really want to do that. God, are you sure you really want to do that? I mean, that, that could really get me in trouble. I mean, I'm, I'm like hanging out next to the wheel. That's a rock. I, I don't want to hit that. From the cherubim chariot to the humble chariot. Paul says, you are the temple of the living God. What have we just seen described? We've seen that very holy of holies described, and it's mobile, it's moving. And then Paul says, hey, guys, by the way, you do know that that's a picture of you in your role. I'm like, What does that have to do with me? I mean, I'm not a cherubim. I know. I, I can't explain it either, why God would want to go from that vehicle to this vehicle. That's, that's about as strange as you can get. You are the temple of the living God, and God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The glory of God carried by a man? Is that even conceivable? For those of you that understand the vast glory, the magnitude, the majesty of Jehovah God, to swallow the simple fact that God would condescend and humble himself to be carried, instead of by a chariot of cherubim, to be carried by a man? Inconceivable! and yet the entire gospel is going to hinge on the fact that it is so. The message of Jesus Christ is that that glory was brought low to the point of even being carried by a humble man who became obedient unto death. This is actually the picture. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And that one that rides in that chariot of the cherubim will come down and shall be called. God is with us. God is being carried in a man's body. God is riding a humble mule, donkey. Inconceivable. And yet the entirety of our hope rests in the fact that he did. The body of Christ is the chosen vehicle of revelation. God has chosen in his economy that a body would be prepared for him and it would bear his glory. This is what the entire Old Testament is preparing us for. The seed of a woman will crush the head of the serpent and he will be born in Bethlehem, Judea. And he will grow up in the midst of of this world, and though there will be nothing in his form or his beauty that would draw anyone to him, he will actually bear the reproach and remove the iniquity of the land in one day. They will pierce his hands and his feet. He will have betrayed, been betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He will ride a donkey into the city of Jerusalem. Who is this one that will bear that glory, that God will literally be in him. The one who comes forth, it says in the Old Testament, his goings forth are from of old and from everlasting. It's the one who rides the chariot that is literally going to come and ride a human body. He's going to condescend to do that? The body of Christ is the chosen vehicle of revelation. So there's two ways you can look at this subtitle the body of Christ. How do we see the glory of God? Through Jesus. That's how we do. And so it's the body of Christ. It's God's chosen means of carrying that holy presence to us. And yet, do you know that we, in fact, are, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become that very body, which, by the way, is the chosen vehicle that God has made to reveal his glory? Now you are the body of Christ. You are that chariot, guys. Just as Jesus carried in his body that glory, so now you are being grafted in and given an assignment. The Holy Spirit is bequeathed to you so that you in this body could actually do the work of carrying the glory of God. Ephesians 3 says, To me, whom less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Now, listen to this. This is amazing. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, this vast understanding of who God is, this revelation of His glory, might be made known by the church. What is his chosen vehicle of revelation? It's called the body of Christ. It's also known as the church, the church of Jesus Christ. That it might be known by the church, made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The word of God begins as a fiery flame inside an ordinary bush. So we are called in the New Testament living epistles, we are called to actually be carriers of this vast glory. And yet that has been foreshadowed from the very beginning. Do you remember when the word of God in text actually began? It began at a bush. in a I mean, talk about an innocuous beginning. That bush, Moses may have walked by that bush who knows how many times in his life when he's tending to the sheep, shepherding the sheep. And he probably never even noticed it. And then one day, God moves into that bush. And what was an everyday normal bush up to that point suddenly became the place of revelation. God once again has chosen a bush, an everyday place in which to have his fire dwell, and that is called us. And still he has chosen the bush in which to dwell. 1 Corinthians 1, The foolishness of God is wiser than men, And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." So what is the proper response to this? If you were to begin to understand that the wisest, most powerful, I mean, the cherubim could rule worlds. They have all the capacity to do the job. And yet here we are, and Jesus says to us, apart from me, you can actually do nothing. We have no capacity. Our intellect fails us in just living our normal everyday life, let alone ruling worlds. We do not have the power. We do not have the beauty. We do not have that which is needed to do this great work. And yet God says, yeah, I've chosen you. You see, God rides on the most regal chariot. It's carried by cherubim. And even the cherubim, the most wise and brilliant and beautiful of all creatures, submits precisely to what God asks. What does God ask? They do it. Now, I want you to evaluate as we get to this point in the message, because this is the whole point. How are you doing in your life when God asks you to do something? The term is called instant obedience. There's two different forms of obedience, and there's one that is real obedience and one that is not. Instant obedience means when you are asked to do it, there is no pause between you saying yes and doing it and when you're asked. When you're asked, you do. That's how obedience works. Some of us have a funny rendition of obedience. We are asked to do something, whether it's by a parent, whether it's by a boss, whether it's by God and his word, and we have a pause. We have a delay of evaluation. And what we are doing is we are putting ourselves in the position of making the decision and commanding ourselves instead of being commanded by something higher than us. You see, we're not in submission. Submission means when God asks, we prove that we're submitted to him by saying, yes, Lord. In the Old Testament, the servant was called the bondservant that literally had his ear pierced with an awl by his master. Why an ear? An ear is the place through which you hear. So if you are saying yes to your Lord, you will submit your ear and saying, whatever you ask of me, I'm going to declare to you, my answer is already yes. We as the church of Jesus Christ are called the bondservants of the Lord, which means we are the ones of pierced ear, We are the ones that have been called out from among the people of this earth and God has brought us to the doorpost. And out of love, we have submitted our ear and said, God, what you ask of me, I will do. And we become his chariot. That is our role in this world. Well, but God, you could ride upon a cherubim. I know, but I've chosen you. I have chosen the foolish things, the weak things through which to reveal my glory. That is his way. Why he wouldn't just come to this earth as a mighty conqueror and decimate the devil. Instead, he comes as a humble servant and destroys the devil with his mouth shut. It's not the way we would do it, which is why we have to submit, because if we get in the way, we take this chariot in the wrong direction. Our job is to submit our chariot, this carrying device that we have, we've been given, and say, God, this is yours. And wherever you want to take it in this earth, I submit and I say yes. So what is our proper response to recognizing that God himself has condescended to choose us? God Almighty, Jehovah, the I am, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has put his finger on your life and he says, you, I choose you. Will you carry my glory? Will you let my throne set upon your soul? Will you submit and bend your knee to me and go wherever I call you to go? Well, let's ask the cherubim. So imagine we had a cherubim in here that's been a long time uh, carrier of the throne of God. And we say, could you give us some insight into how we should respond to the glory of God moving into our life? I mean, the Holy Spirit is wanting to come in and actually make my body his home. How should I handle this? Well, a cherubim understands what it means to be ruled by something greater. Though, if there is anyone, and we obviously see it in Lucifer, Lucifer exalted himself. He obviously had some substance, he was a pretty impressive character. And yet, what Lucifer has been in the business of ever since is trying to distract us with the same bait: exalt yourself. You don't need to carry God, carry your own glory, says the one, the cherub that used to cover his very presence, and yet instead of exalting God, chose to exalt himself? Let's ask the cherubim that have served God faithfully from the very beginning. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. Is that a description of your Christianity? I'll read it again. And each one went straight forward. They went wherever the Spirit wanted to go, and they did not turn when they went. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went, because there the Spirit went. And the wheels were lifted together with them, for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Listen, all the way in in, through Ezekiel 10, it says the same thing. When they went, they went toward any of their four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction, listen to this, but followed in the direction the head was facing. In the New Testament, we know who the head is. His name is Jesus Christ. And wherever he turns, we turn. We are his vehicle. We are the chariot of the cherubim. We are the new carrying device in this covenant. We are the ones that have been hand-selected by heaven. Yes, I would agree we are a very humble alternative. But the one who was enthroned in heaven became a little baby and was laid in a feeding trough, wrapped in peasantry, chose fishermen and tax collectors as his heroes. This is how he chose to come. He humbled himself and appeared to be a common criminal, nailed to a cross, and in so doing, through his humble means of rescue, saved the world. And he says, this is still my way. This is how I will change the world. I'm choosing a humble means to accomplish it. I need you to participate. I want your body. I want to make that my chariot in this world. But God, your glory? My glory will rest upon you. You will be the carrier. and That's what Paul says. The mystery hidden for ages and generations has now been revealed. What is it? Christ in us. The hope of glory. God is going to move in. He's going to sit on his throne. And literally out of our bellies will flow rivers of living water. That awesome crystal. That crystal sea will gush forth from us. The life of God will come forth. Three obvious things to do. And this is how we're going to finish. Tremble with awe. I I think it goes without saying. but, But just in case it needs to be said. Do you recognize how outrageous it is that God Almighty would come knocking on our life and say, I would like to ride you? We're the donkey. And God says, look, I'm needing a donkey uh, to ride into uh, Jerusalem to do my mighty work of salvation. And he chooses us. He has come out of his way and found us. Why he has chosen and called us is befuddling. And yet, what is our proper response? Awe and trembling. The Lord reigns, it says in Psalm 99. Let the people tremble. This is the proper response. The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. Now listen to this next line. He sits between the cherubim. Even the cherubim do what he asks them to do, people. Don't you know what that means? He's almighty. He reigns. Let the people tremble. Let the earth be moved. Number two, let's show cherubic obedience. So if, parents, you can use this with your kids when you're teaching them about instant obedience. You can just call it cherubic obedience. If we have been commissioned by God to carry the glory of God the same way the cherubim carried it in the Old Testament, what does it look like? It means when you're asked to do something, the head turns this way, the cherubim turn this way. It's instant. One of the statements that uh, a teacher way back in the days of missionary school for me said, he said, you can measure humility by, when, by having a clock start ticking the moment you know you've done something wrong, and from that point to the point when you make it right. Just measure that, and that's, there's your humility right there. There should be no passage of time. When you know you've done something wrong, make it right. Well, you can measure obedience based on the same principle. Cherubic obedience is defined by the moment you know what you ought to do, you do it. Now, unfortunately, we have settled into a mode of living out our Christian life, which involves delay, and it involves processing. I mean, I can't just do this. I can't just obey the Word of God on that point. I need to think about this. And so as a result, we don't obey until we feel that we're ready to. But that isn't how the cherubim work. God's throne is carried by those that have a pierced ear. In other words, you decide today to say yes to God's command a week from now. In other words, God's going to ask you to do some things that will be uncomfortable. He's not asking you if if it's comfortable. He's saying, do it. You should read the rest of the book of Ezekiel, and you'll recognize the entire book of Ezekiel is about this exact thing. And how did Ezekiel do it? Well, his name means something. And that is God strengthens a man. How do we do it in the New Testament? God strengthens the man. It's called in dunamis. The dunamis of God, the strength of an army, enters into us by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to obey. This is how Christianity functions. This is how Ezekiel functions. This is how the cherubim function. In and amidst their midst is a fire And it goes back and forth and it moves about them just as Jesus was in the midst of that fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. How did they endure that? How did they obey? God is in the midst of them. And God is in the midst of our life. And that is how we do this. Wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went. By the way, this is just as convicting to me as it would be to you. Because it just says it so clearly. We have a model in the Old Testament. It's just there. They're carrying the glory of God, the same task we've been given in the new, and look how they did it. Number three, aggressively purify your chariot. I was uh, taking Mike and Nathan, and I think Donaldson was there uh, this this Friday, and the f- Thursday night, Leslie said, which car are you taking in the morning? And I said, oh, I was thinking I'd take the GMC. And she goes, we got kids' stuff all over the back seat. And so what did I do? Knowing that I was going to have some fairly prominent guests in my chariot the next morning, what did I do? I went out and got up extra early, and I went out and purified my chariot. <laughs> Lest they sit on something that they shouldn't. How many of us have done that, thinking if we're going to have a, someone enter into our chariot, our car... How many of us will go out of our way to even go get it washed and get it vacuumed that day? I mean, hey, we're going to pick these people up from the airport. There's no way they're going to sit on my you know, McDonald's uh, you know, bag. I'm going to get that out. And the same is true. I, don't, uh, I did eat at McDonald's with Dwight, so that did happen. But outside of that, I don't eat at McDonald's. So that, I'm not trying to get you thinking that. I had to, of course, acknowledge that I did eat with Dwight. Now Dwight, I think he's preaching at the other location. He's, his wife's going to be like, what was that? Uh, <laughs> I want you to recognize that the King of Kings is moving into your car. And if the King of Kings is going to come in and call your chariot his chariot, how should you respond? The Bible's very clear on that. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is an action to say, God, if I am going to carry this, and that's what we do before communion. We're literally bringing in the king of kings into our chariot. That's what this symbolizes. We're literally inviting him in and declaring afresh. The symbolic work that that bread and uh, juice shows is the real work of God moving in and claiming what is rightfully his. So I want us to purify ourselves. I want you to recognize that there are things in your life that the spirit of God is going to say, this needs to go. You're the carrying device for my glory. Let's get this out. And I want you to ask God to strengthen you, to give you the supply, the very thing he gave to Ezekiel, to do a work Ezekiel never talks back in and through the whole book. He just does what God asks him to do. It's like a supernatural book. The whole while you're thinking, I don't know that I would do that, Ezekiel. And he does it. He just does it. Even to his own harm, he does it. How much more so those of us in the New Covenant that are being commissioned to actually carry that glory into this generation.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.